Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. And uh, there's lots of things going on today, so we'll just get right into it. Um, one of those things is, is we are celebrating today four years of Phoenix Bible Church. So we can celebrate that. Yeah. And we're not, we're not celebrating too much. We don't want to get too crazy, right? That'll be for five years, ten years. But uh, we did give you a PBC sticker. So stick that somewhere. Celebrate four years of our church. And uh, we have cookies in the back, uh, those back two tables. We invite you to stay just for a few minutes after church. Grab a cookie and celebrate God's goodness in cookies and in Jesus as we celebrate four years. So stick around after church to do that with us. So hopefully you got a sticker, cookies after service. And then you also got a couple things as you walked in as well. One of them is a study guide uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Who do you say that I am? This new series that we're kicking off today. So if you didn't grab one of those, get one on your way out. It goes through chapter by chapter. There's 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. It goes through one chapter at a time. Really simple a study just to point you to the text and ultimately point you to, to Jesus. So you can do this by yourself. You can do this as a couple. Uh, you'll talk about this a lot in your community groups if you're in one of those. We encourage you, as we look at the life of Jesus, really over the next year plus, that we wouldn't just do that on a Sunday for an hour. Uh, you would do that throughout your week and look at the life of Jesus. So that's to help you dive deeper into that. You have your bulletin as you walked in as well. If you open that up, everybody grab that and do that with me. If you open that up in the middle, you can see a place to take notes. Uh, you also see what's going on, financial update as well. Uh, but you can take notes as we dive in together. Uh, you will get way more out of this if you don't just listen to me talk, all right? If you dig into this yourself, take notes, see how this applies to your life, get together with people throughout the week, get coffee, go through this study guide, you will get more and more of Jesus as we go through this series if you do that. So we invite you to do that today. And as we celebrate four years this week, I got a little nostalgic and came across a picture that we're gonna throw up on the screen of about four years ago. Uh, where a group of us gathered in a room, not in this room, but in a room of Grace Lutheran Church, and we prayed together for the very first service of Phoenix Bible Church. And it's amazing to look back at that picture and just remember some things. Uh, remember kind of who was there, remember what was going on, and, and, and mostly I just remember it being a whirlwind. As we tried to start a brand new church, right? If you've ever been a part of something like that, there's a lot to that. And mostly I just remember it being really busy and just a whirlwind and hoping we can get a church off the ground. And so I'd love to tell you what we prayed that night and how it's come to fruition. And these detailed, grandioso visions that we had that night. And four years later, we've seen them come to fruition. But I can't because I don't remember what we prayed that night. It was all a blur. My family and I were new to Phoenix. We parachuted in here. Uh, right before that picture, my wife found out she was pregnant with our third child. And so a lot was going on. I couldn't tell you the details that were on the prayer outline, but I can tell you it involved something to this effect, that we said we are imperfect people moved by the perfect love of Jesus. We are imperfect people. God, move us by the perfect love of Jesus to start this church, to see other imperfect people be moved by the perfect love of Jesus so they might love Jesus, live like him, and lead others to him. I can tell you it involves something like that. Now, we've refined that language over the years, put it on shirts and the website, right? But I can tell you it involves something like that, and by God's grace, I can tell you that that has happened. Even as you've walked in the room this morning, four years later, 
you see some imperfect people. We're, we're way less spiritual than we look. Right? We see some imperfect people all across this room in different ways. But one thing we have in common is we have all been moved to even come to church today by the perfect love of Jesus. And as we look at the Gospel of Mark, I hope that continues to happen. And so I just wanted to celebrate this really quickly. Uh, if you were here at the very beginning, not, not if you were just at that prayer night, you don't have to be there, but if you were here from the very beginning of this church, would you just stand up and can we celebrate you? Yeah, can we celebrate these guys? And stay standing, guys. Stay standing, stay standing. And if you have gone through our membership class and you consider yourself a part of Phoenix Bible Church, as Guy and talked about earlier, would you stand? You guys celebrate these guys? So a lot of our members are out of town. We can just point that out right now. We do keep attendance gold stars. Just kidding. Um, you guys can have a seat. Thank you so much. I, I wanted to do that just to celebrate the fact that you are God's church. The church is not a building. It's a people. So as we celebrate four years, we're celebrating the people of God that God has used, these imperfect people that have been moved by the perfect love of Jesus. We're celebrating that. If you have not considered this your church home, if you're, if you're not a part of this, if you didn't just stand October 21st in a couple weeks, you can join us in this journey. We are just in the beginning of a church. Four years old, we're just coming out of toddler stage, right? And you can join this family and be on this journey with us, not just for the next uh, year or two, but for the next four years. And we can have more stories and you can stand as well and be a part of what God is doing. Really thankful. Uh, I can say that I'm really thankful for what God has done but I'm also really hopeful for what he's going to do. So we're in this uh, new series, Who Do You Say That I Am? It's going through the gospel of Mark, and it's really something we've never done before in our four years. We've never gone through a whole gospel, right, because they take a long time to go through. We're really going to dive into the gospel of Mark, and we're going to look at this question, Who Do You Say That I Am? And that comes out of Mark chapter 8. Uh, Mark is 16 chapters in total. Mark 8 is that midway point in the book of Mark, and it's really a turning point in the gospel of Mark. If you read Mark chapter 8, uh, you see this question of, who do you say that I am? It starts out with a question from Jesus to his disciples to say, who, who do other people say that I am? And his disciples kind of answer, here's who some people say you are, and, and here's what some people say of you. And then Jesus gives them this moment of truth, and directly to Peter, he switches it and says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And it's this turning point in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 8, and it's really the most important question of all of life. Who do you say that I am? All right, not just for the disciples in that day, the crowds in that day, not just for Peter, but for you. And so as we go through this series on the Gospel of Mark and, and look at this question, I want you to answer this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Is your life reflecting that truth? And so for the non-Christian in this room, if you don't know Jesus and you're curious and checking out Jesus and maybe you have rejected Jesus in the past because of a misconception, because of a bad experience, because of religion, that you would be pressed with this moment of truth, who do you say Jesus is? I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about that bad experience growing up. I'm not talking about that pastor when you were little who just yelled all the time. I'm not talking about any of those things. Who do you say Jesus is? And how is your life going to reflect that truth? That's my hope for you if you don't know Jesus. If you are a Christian 
And maybe you can check some boxes. You're like, man, I'm a Christian. I was baptized. I go to church. I read my Bible every day. I I can check some boxes. I can get some answers right about Jesus on a quiz. But if you're honest this morning, you you would say, I'm a little bit numb to Jesus. When we sing these songs about it's your breath in my lungs, I, I don't get too excited about that anymore. I stand up. I sit down. I go through the motions. I know Jesus. I believe in him. But I'm just, I'm just checking some boxes. If that's you, my prayer would, would be that you would be awakened to the person and work, to the character and nature of Jesus Christ, who we're going to read about is the Son of God coming in the flesh, tearing open the heavens, that you would be reminded, awakened to that Jesus throughout this series. Whether you know Jesus or not, my prayer is that we would all be confronted with this question, who do you say Jesus is? How is that being reflected in the way that you live? So we're going to look at that. Mark 1, um, Ron read it earlier. I invite you to grab a Bible. If you didn't grab one, there's some on some bookshelves as you walked right in. You can go out there and grab one. It won't offend me at all. You can pull one up on your phone, get God's word in front of you. Mark chapter 1. Now, I need to give you some context for this. Mark is not one of the 12 disciples, uh, but Mark was a key figure in the early church. Well, we read about him in the gospel, uh, or in, in the book of Acts, rather. Uh, we read about him in the book of Acts. He rolled with a guy named Paul, the apostle, Barnabas. He actually was a cause of a split between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later as we get into the book. But, but Mark was a younger guy, part of this mission of Jesus, but he wasn't one of the early followers of Jesus, but... What's fascinating about Mark is most scholars believe that his mom had a house that had an upper room, which Jesus would gather the disciples to pray. If you read about the life of Jesus and uh, the beginning of the book of Acts, they gather to this upper room. Jesus gathers the disciples to this upper room to pray. And most scholars believe that upper room was part of a house that Mark lived in. It was his mom's house. So Mark was a key figure. It would be like a young boy. I have a six-year-old son who's growing up in my house and seeing all kinds of ministry come in and out of my house and seeing people and getting a front row seat to it all. That was, that was Mark. And as he writes the gospel of Mark, we believe that, that Peter, who was one of the early disciples, one of the 12, helped him write it. And so he got a front row seat just to kind of be a part of the crowd, seeing the life of Jesus, heal all these people, seeing Jesus proclaim all these truths. And then he got Peter, one of the disciples, to come alongside him and help him write this gospel. And I want to point that out to you because it brings a lot of credibility to Jesus and to the gospel of Mark. Right? Mark wasn't a guy who lived years later. Mark was in the mix Mark was an eyewitness to this account. He he wrote this with the help of another eyewitness, Peter, to this account. Now, let's just think about that for a moment, because sometimes we look at the Gospels and we think maybe you watched a a Nat Geo show uh, or read a magazine, and well, maybe the disciples made this story up about Jesus. Maybe the Gospels were written and just sort of made up stories to make Jesus look better than he actually was. Have you ever heard that? Well, this contradicts that a little bit because Mark wrote this with the help of Peter. Have you ever read about Peter in the Gospels? Not such a glowing review of the guy, right? Now, if I was Peter, I would have helped Mark say, hey, can you just take out that part about me denying Jesus? 
hey, can you just take out that part of me doubting Jesus? Can you just take out that part of me wanting to be at the right hand of Jesus? And so we look at the way this was written, Mark, with the help of, of Peter, if they were going to make up a story, they, they made up a really bad one about themselves. Right? Another thing you look at is the timeline. This was written, we believe, about 20 to 40 years after Jesus, and so people are still alive. This story could have been affirmed or denied by people who were still around. Right? Other main ancient manuscripts that we have of different stories in history sometimes are written hundreds of years after the fact. This story is written 20 to 40 years. People are still alive, and so they could have come along and said, Mark, hey, you got these facts wrong. Hey, that didn't actually happen. They could have also affirmed his testimony as well. It would be like today, so 2018, if I said to you 20 years ago in 1998, I won a triathlon. Now, some of you wouldn't believe that by, just by looking at me, right? But, but some of you could actually want to test that, Tim. Did you really compete in and win a triathlon? Really? Let me go talk to your dad. Let me go talk to your, your friend. Let me go talk to your sister because I want to verify, did you compete in that triathlon? Did you win that triathlon? And you would be able to go back and see, I, in fact, have never competed in a triathlon and probably never will. Right? Why? Because it was just 20 years ago. Mark writes this about 20 to 40 years after Jesus so that people would still be alive and be able to affirm this truth. So I hope no matter what your background is, even if you're already a Christian and sometimes you wonder, sometimes you doubt, is this all just made up? Am I just, am I just giving my life to something that just sounds good? Is it just really a crutch? I mean, other people ask me about that. Like, maybe it is. If you've ever had those moments, you need to see there's credibility to the life of Jesus, to the gospel of Mark. It should give you some confidence as we dive into this together. The first thing we see as, as we do look at the text itself is the promise of new beginnings, verses 1 through 8. Look at verse 1 with me. We, we see a few words that are really impactful here. The first one is beginning. It starts out with the beginning. This is similar to how the way the whole Bible starts out, like in the beginning. The reality is that was the first beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. We see the creation account in the beginning, but we also see Mark say the beginning, that the reality is this is a, a new beginning. It's a new start, that the first beginning started out great, Adam and Eve, remember, naked and unashamed, started out great, started out with no sin, perfect union with God, peace with God. You know how long that lasted? Two chapters. Genesis 3, sin enters the equation. It distorts and destructs everything. And over and over throughout the whole Old Testament, we see sacrifices being made, covering of sin to try to get to God and reestablish that perfect union with God. And what Mark is saying right off the bat is the beginning of the gospel. There is a new beginning. It's not like the old beginning. There's a new beginning. And it's new because of good news. That's the gospel. That word gospel is this word evangelion. It's this word good news. And as Mark talks about the gospel, it's an old word with a new meaning. Right? Mark didn't make up the word gospel. Uh, that word was used all the time in their society. 
We believe Mark is writing this to a lot of Roman citizens, and they would have known this word gospel. They would have heard it before from kings and Caesars as they would usher in something grand. They would say, hey, the gospel, this is a gospel. This is good news. Here's my decree. I'm the king. This is, I bring good news. I bring the gospel. And Mark used that language intentionally. It's politically charged to say there is a king that's greater than this guy. There is the king, there is the gospel, that it's good news, that it's a new beginning. And, and if you've been around church for a while, and you've heard some sermons like this, and you've, if you've gone through sermon series, or you've been a Christian for a while, or maybe you, you haven't, and you've rejected the church, you need to know that every time you come in church, that every time you think about Christianity, that every time you look at Jesus, you should think about good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it's good news. That if you only hear legalism, if you only hear bad news, if you only hear a list of to-dos, then you haven't heard the gospel. If you have, it's either been incorrect or incomplete. The Christianity is about good news. Not good moral advice that you try to attain, but good news that you receive. That's what the core of Christianity, that's how gospel of Mark Begins, And then we see it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see two significant titles here, Christ and the Son of God. Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that was coming. Son of God indicates authority that God gave his authority to his son Jesus. And he is entering in with all the authority of God the Father. He's Christ. He's the Son of God. And, and if you notice, Mark starts off with this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is the anointed one. This is the one we have been waiting on. Other gospels start different. The gospel of Luke starts with Christmas. Jesus is a baby. Gospel of Matthew, we have the genealogy of Jesus. Hey, this is all the people Jesus came from, and this is where he came from. The gospel of Mark is is different than that. Immediately, Mark is going to declare to you, this is Jesus. He's the Son of God. It takes the disciples to Mark 8 to figure that out. Mark's going to tell you from the get-go, Jesus is the Son of God. And so as you read this story and people are trying to figure out who Jesus is, Mark is telling you from the start, Jesus is the Son of God. The reason he does that is he's writing to, again, Roman citizens, not people with a, a Jewish or religious background primarily. So the people of the Jewish religious background, they would get geeked up about the genealogy because they knew their Old Testament. Because this Matthew would run through all these names, and, and then comes Jesus. They'd be like, oh, yes, okay, Jesus has credibility. For these Roman citizens, they didn't need that. They wouldn't have been excited about that. So Mark gets right to the point that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a fast-paced book. It's a busy book. It's a lot of action. Not a lot of words by Jesus, but a lot of deeds. We see Jesus is the Son of God. What Mark declares in the beginning is put on display throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark. That Jesus has come in power. He's the anointed one. He's the one with all authority. That he has power, we're going to see, over nature, calming storms. He has power over the spiritual realm, casting out demons. He has power over sickness and and brings healing, even in the midst of death. That we're going to see the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, put on display as Mark declares that to start off the book, that he has the power to usher in this new beginning. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this new beginning wasn't a new idea. If you look at the text, verses 2 and 3, it's been promised from all time. We see Isaiah, a prophecy from Isaiah about 700 years prior that a messenger would come and prepare this Jesus Christ, Son of God. That messenger, we learn, is a guy named John the Baptist. And we don't know a lot about this guy, John the Baptist. We see he wears some strange clothes. We see he eats some strange things like locusts, right? We don't know a ton about John the Baptist, but we know he's coming out of the wilderness. And sometimes we think wilderness, we think like Montana, like flowing streams and pine trees. Don't think that. He's coming out of the wilderness of the desert. I think Middle East. So John's wearing these strange clothes, eating strange things, and he's in the wilderness. And that's, that's really all it says about John. We know he's got some people following him. He's got some crowds. But he's preparing the way for Jesus. Now, what's fascinating about this is we do know from the Gospel of Luke that John the Baptist and Jesus were in the womb around the same time. If you think about the Gospel of Luke, it starts out with Elizabeth miraculously pregnant with John the Baptist. And then you have Mary, who's miraculously pregnant with Jesus. Like they would have started a little play date together, right? And, and they did. In fact, Mary shows up to Elizabeth and is like, what's going on? I'm a teenage girl, and, I, and I'm pregnant, and I haven't even had sex yet, and, and, and how do I process all this? And we see what's fascinating in the Gospel of Luke is we see Mary show up, Jesus in the womb, shows up to Elizabeth, John the Baptist in the womb, and we see that John the Baptist leaps for joy. And so you see this connection between John the Baptist and Jesus, even as they're in the wombs. And so as we talk about the credibility of the Gospels, as we talk about the credibility of, of Jesus, I want you to think about this. You have John the Baptist. Popular crowds are following him. Right? They think he might be the one. He's baptizing people. People are confessing their sins. Their lives are being changed. John the Baptist, right? Same age as Jesus, same extended family as Jesus, similar miraculous births. Even Jesus later says this about John the Baptist, that he was the greatest man who ever lived. This is John the Baptist, pretty good resume, right? Really similar to Jesus, yet John says this in verse 7. He says, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. In that culture, Untying the sandals, getting on your knees and untying the sandals of someone else was the lowest form of service they had. A servant would do that to his master, but it was the lowest form of service that they would give to their master. And what John says is, hey, I got these crowds. I'm the same age. We got the same family. I, hey, I got my own miraculous birth, Jesus. But what John says in this moment is, I'm not even worthy to do the most low act of a servant to Jesus, that Jesus is mightier than me. In another gospel, we see him step aside and say, behold, he who takes away the sins of the world. Now, how does that give Jesus credibility, credibility the gospel of Mark credibility? What's the humility of John the Baptist that brings credibility? Right? It's the same thing we say about James, Jesus' brother, like James writes a whole book of the New Testament proclaiming Jesus is the risen son of God, but he's Jesus' brother. How does that happen? 
And we say this, like, what, what would you have to do to convince your brother you were God? Think about your brother. You'd have to rise from the dead. You'd have to actually be God to convince your brother you are God. That's what happens with James, the brother of Jesus. It's the same thing that happens with Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. What would your friend have to do to convince you he was God? He'd have to have risen from the dead. He'd have to actually be the son of God for you to say, hey, cousin, friend, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie your sandals. Despite the fact that I got crowds, I got the same history as you. John the Baptist and his humility brings credibility to the life of Jesus, to the gospel of Mark. Jesus isn't just a good man. Jesus isn't just a good teacher. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. We see that from John the Baptist. He was the messenger that was prophesied about. Then we see his message. Look at the text with me. His message is repentance and forgiveness of sins. That word repentance is this idea of a double turning. Right? It's not just saying, like, I want to follow Jesus. It's a, it's a turning away from sin to God, repentance. It's a, a change in your thinking. It's a change in your direction. He preaches repentance and forgiveness of sins. Verse 5, people are confessing. They're being baptized. And the people this is happening with are people from Judah, Judea, rather, and Jerusalem. Why is that significant? That all these people from the country of Judea, the city of Jerusalem, were coming, repenting for the forgiveness of sins. Why is that significant? We see, just like in their day and our day, we could think of, who needs to repent? Well, probably those people in prison. I mean, probably those people on the news. Probably these people around me who have done really bad things. But me, like, I go to church like, I do good things. Tim, I'm here today. I got my Bible. Like, I, I don't know if I am the one who needs to repent. And people in his day would have thought that as well. And, and so it, Mark makes it clear. It's not just bad people. It's not just good people. It's not just irreligious people who need to repent. It's not just religious people who need to repent. It's all these people come from all over the country, from all over the city, Experiencing repentance. That's this message of repentance. It's a, a double turning. It's a turning away from sin and turning to God. And that's the message that John the Baptist preached. That is the message that Jesus lives through his life, death, and resurrection. That's the message Jesus puts on display. That is the promise of new beginning that we have. Our second point is the pattern of blessing in battle. We see this in verses 9 through 13. Verse 9, look at the verse with me. We see Jesus is baptized by John. Now, Jesus isn't baptized for his sins, but to be our example. So sometimes we get hung up on this, like, why is Jesus baptized? Baptism, just so you know, is a symbol, an outside, uh, an outworking of an inner truth, an inner reality, that we believe Jesus died, he rose again. When we get baptized, we go down in the water, and we come out of the water to show that we believe that. So why does Jesus get baptized? He was without sin. Well, it was to be our example. Then when we go down in the water, we identify with Jesus, his death, his resurrection. When Jesus went down in the water and came out, he identified with us. 
He gave us an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus, that you should be baptized to celebrate this new beginning. We talked about it earlier. A guy said it. We have a baptism coming up October 28th. We'd invite you to get baptized. If you were baptized as a baby, we'd invite you to get baptized as an adult, to profess after Jesus' example, to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To get baptized, you can sign up for that at the Connect Desk. We'd invite you to do that. We're going to see that in other places in the Gospel of Mark, baptism. But I want to pull out three things that we see in this baptism. We see this amazing blessing that Jesus experiences. One of the things we see is the Trinity. We see God the Father, the voice of God the Father. We see Jesus, the Son, going under the water, coming out. And we see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. That's what we believe as the Trinity in Scripture. The Trinity, that word is never used in all of Scripture, but we see a perfect example of it existing right here. But that's not the only thing we see. We see this blessing of, one, the heaven open. The heavens open. If you think about it, this has been 700 years since the prophecy of Isaiah. The prophecy of Isaiah that said a messenger would come to give a message to prepare the way of the Lord. 700 years, people are waiting for the heavens to open, for God to come and bring rescue and renewal. And you have to imagine at this point in the game, people are wondering, like, is it really going to happen? God, are you really going to come? God, do you know what's going on in our lives? Do you know our struggle? God, do you even care? And so as we come to this, the heavens open, and notice it says the heavens aren't just open, they're torn open. They're torn in two. Why use that language? The only other time this word is used is with a curtain when Jesus is crucified on the cross. The curtain in the temple, the barrier between us and God. As Jesus dies on the cross, we talked about this on Good Friday, the curtain is completely torn in two. The barrier is removed. That man no longer has to go around through a mediator to go to God. Man can go directly to God. In fact, God has come to man. And so as Mark says, the heavens aren't just open, they're torn open. That's God's love breaking through his peace, breaking through his truth, breaking through that it's torn, that it can't be put back together. That not only has God come after all this time, as people are literally looking up to the heavens, God, where are you? As maybe you this morning have looked to the heavens, God, where are you? Are you in the midst of this difficult situation in my marriage? God, where are you? Are you in the midst of this job that's not going so hot right now? Are you in the midst of this financial situation? God, where are you? Are you in the midst of this anxiety that that has its foot on my throat? I can't even breathe. Where are you in the midst of this sin that's crippling me, this cycle of sin that I can't get over? As you ask that question, as they would ask that question, Mark makes it clear the heavens have been torn. They can't be put back together. That heaven meets earth through the Son of God. That the barrier has been removed. That you can go to him. That, that he's there. That he was there then. That he's there now. The heavens are open in this blessing of baptism. The second thing we see is the Spirit is descending. That to be joined with Jesus is to be joined with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends upon Jesus. The Spirit indwells us when we believe in Jesus. This signifies the power and the presence of God with us. Uh, These last four years, as we've started this church, 
even for my families. We've moved to Phoenix about four and a half years ago. These last four years, I can tell you, have been the most vulnerable of my life. Not just my life, my family's life. Just starting a new church, parachuting into a place. We didn't have any family, any friends here. And they've been the most vulnerable of our lives. That day when my wife was pregnant with our third child, we didn't have insurance. If you think about having a child, you should get insurance, right? <laughs> Just one-on-one freebie for the day. We, we didn't have a lot, a lot of friends to lean on. We didn't have a core group that we were sent down here with. We didn't have relational equity. It was a vulnerable time for us. Honestly, it's taken a while for us to assimilate to Phoenix and get our kids in schools that we like and find neighborhoods that we like and have friends and even learn what that means as a pastor. I can tell you these last four years have been the most vulnerable of our lives, but they've also been the most fulfilling of our lives. Why? Because we've stepped out to do something that would be impossible to do on our own. We've stepped out to do something that every day, every week, I'm reminded that I need to rely upon the power of God through the Spirit of God. The same power that descends upon Jesus in this moment that's indwelled me, that I have to rely upon that. Because we can't look at the circumstances and look at our city and look at our family and friends and look at this church with our great sending church and all the different things we had and the money we had and the insurance we didn't have and all those different things. We couldn't look at those things and think, I got this. And so we've been vulnerable. But we've also been fulfilled as we've had to cling to Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God every step of the way. That maybe we can make some, some coffee that's not very good. Maybe we can show up and throw some Bibles out and turn some lights on. But, but really not even that. We can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit moving in and through and around us. And over the last four years, that's not just something we've been able to say. That's something we have lived. Sometimes in difficult ways, realizing that. Sometimes in joyous ways, but all the time being fulfilled we have to rely upon the Spirit of God, the power of God in our lives. That's the same Spirit that indwells you. Listen, as we think about four years, as we think about the next four years, as we think about the next 40 years, I want nothing more for our church than that. Than an utter reliance, desperation on the Holy Spirit of God. Right? You don't have to cancel your insurance either. Right? Don't do that. You don't have to go out and start a church and think, okay, well, Tim, I'm going to go to seminary. Okay, you want me to rely upon the Holy Spirit like that? Like, i got to go to seminary. i got to plant a church. No, stay in this church. Help us build this one, right? Amen? Like, no, you don't have to go out and do something different. Try parenting your kids to know Jesus in a chaotic world. you got to cling to the Holy Spirit. Right? Try, try reading your Bible when your phone is right next to you calling out to you. You need the Holy Spirit of God. Right, try talking to your neighbor and loving them, even, they're, even though they're a different ethnicity than you, even though they're a different personality than you, even though they take their trash can out on a different day and don't put it up on the same day you do. Right, try loving that neighbor. Try proclaiming the gospel to that neighbor who may be going to hell, separated from Jesus for eternity, without the gospel, try proclaiming the gospel to your neighbor. How do you do that? 
Holy Spirit of God in you, through you, around you. The same spirit that descended on Jesus has indwelled you. My prayer for our church, I want nothing more for our church for the next four years, for the next 40 years, than for us to be a people who live like that. The third thing we see is this voice from the Father that says, you are my beloved, I am well pleased. We see this complete approval with Jesus. What a blessing, right? What a blessing that before all these people, before John the Baptist who had his following, for God the Father to in that moment give his voice to Jesus and say, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Other translations say, I delight in you. This is something we're all looking for, isn't it? Somebody to say that. That approval in our job. That approval with our spouse. That approval with our ex-spouse. That approval with our friends. Something we're all looking for. I saw this recently. My daughter and my son are playing soccer right now. And um, yesterday we had a soccer game, and it was amazing in this amazing weather. And um, my daughter is playing soccer, but she keeps... She keeps looking over at me, and the coach is telling her all sorts of things. I mean, it's like herding cats, right, with kids playing soccer. The coach is telling her, like, go back to the post. Hey, now go up to the circle. And she's just, like, the whole time, like, looking around, like, am I doing this right? And she keeps looking at me, and she's looking for that approval, right? She's looking at, like, hey, is this going right, Dad? Like, am I? And I keep looking at her, I'm like, look at the other person on the field, Go get the ball. Don't look at me. Look at the action in the game. And part of the reason, just some repentance of my own, part of the reason she's looking at me for approval is because I kind of set it up that way. Because sometimes I'm that overbearing dad with soccer who my wife is like, walks away and just like, I don't know that guy. (laughs) Or like, settle down. Right? Sometimes I'm that dad. And so I've been learning. I heard this somewhere recently. Like, Don't be that overbearing dad when your kids play sports. Instead, do this. Say to them before the game, hey, I can't wait to see you play today. Just say that. I can't wait to see you play today. And as I've been trying to do that, obviously not well because my daughter's still looking at me. I've noticed when I do do it, though, she just just lightens up after the game. (laughs) I made up for it, and I said, I I, I loved seeing you play today, right? And you just see that, that glow on their face. I have approval. In my daughter's mind, I have complete approval from my dad, right? That's a little bit like what we see here, that God the Father looks at Jesus and says, you're my beloved. You're my dearly loved. I'm well pleased with you. You have complete approval. Now, as you look for that approval from your boss, from your ex-spouse, from your current spouse, from your friends, from people in this room, as you seek that approval so desperately, you need to know that that approval has already been wrought for you in the cross of Christ. That if you are in Jesus, if you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. If you know Jesus, you are in him, he is in you. When God sees you, God the Father looks down on you. He doesn't see your sinful deeds. He sees his righteous son. So if you are in Christ, you are his dearly beloved with whom he is well pleased. 
Have you ever heard that? Have you ever just rested in that truth? And we're so desperately seeking that on social media. We're so desperately seeking that in our promotion. We're so desperately seeking that word of affirmation from someone in our lives. And what God is saying to you in this moment through Jesus is you already have it. Take a breath. You already have it. In Christ, you are his dearly beloved. You are whom he is well pleased. God speaks these same words over you today. So in this baptism, we see this blessing. We see this example, but we also see this example as Jesus is tempted. Verse 13, look at that verse. It says, and he, that's Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days by being tempted by Satan. Jesus was baptized as our example. He's tempted as our example. Right? He gets the Holy Spirit of God, and then he's driven out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan. Why? Well, why is he baptized? Because he wants you to know what it looks like to follow Jesus and be baptized and have a new beginning. Well, why is he tempted? Because he knew you would be tempted, and he wants you to see what it's like to be tempted. Hebrews 4 says to be tempted in every way, yet without sin. That was Jesus. So that what? He can empathize with you. And so Jesus is our example in the blessing and in the battle. And that's a pattern we see through the rest of the Gospel of Mark. We see blessing, and then we see battle. We see this blessing, you are my beloved son, Jesus. I'm well pleased with you. You have a complete approval. But then go out into the wilderness for 40 days and be tempted by Satan himself. Blessing and then battle. You see that throughout the book. You see crowds follow Jesus, and then you see people criticize Jesus. You see crowds follow Jesus, and you see, see, see people seek to kill Jesus. You see people praise Jesus, but then persecute Jesus. You see blessing and battle over and over. Why? Because that's your life. Blessing and then battle. Tim, really, I'm, I'm God's beloved child He's well pleased with me. Like, what a blessing. I came to church today. I'm encouraged. We sang some songs. But guess what? You're going to leave here, and there's going to be some battle. There's going to be some temptation by Satan himself to you to think, maybe it was made up. I mean, maybe it was some good stories and good things, but maybe I should go to my sin. Maybe I should go to my idol to fulfill me. Maybe I should go back to that career and get some of that approval because maybe the approval of God isn't enough. God knew, Jesus knew that you would experience blessing and battle. And so he gives you that example. But it doesn't just start this way in the Gospel of Mark. It ends this way. But the Gospel of Mark starts with blessing, then battle. We see it all throughout the text, and then it ends the same way. On a Sunday you have people waving palm leaves, praising Jesus, welcoming him in as king. Hosanna, Hosanna, you're the savior. They're praising Jesus on a Palm Sunday. A week later, they say crucify him. The, the book of Mark starts with blessing and battle. It continues with blessing and battle. It culminates with blessing and battle to show you that that is your life. Listen, we talk about the Christian life. We talk about it being a journey. We even have those words on the screen, a journey through the gospel of Mark. We talk about the Christian life as a relationship, as a journey, as a life. But you need to know it is those things, but it's also a battle. That You do not war against flesh and blood, but demons, principalities, spiritual realm. It's out there. 
And not every time you get a flat tire, right? You, Satan obviously didn't want me to come to church, right? Not to go there, but you are in a battle. Are you in a life, a relationship, a journey with God? Yes. Is it glorious? Is it victorious? Yes. But are you in a battle? Yeah. And Jesus shows us that as he lives so that we can live the same way, empowered for that battle. So, if you're here and you're not a Christian, as we start the Gospel of Mark, I want you to see the promise of a new beginning. I want you to see the pattern of blessing and battle. Listen, if you're not a Christian, I am not proclaiming to you, give your life to Jesus and then everything will be all right. Don't hear that today. If you've heard that before and you jumped into a relationship with Jesus, you're like, what? Sin? It's still there? What sickness and strife? Like, get off me. That pastor said everything was going to go well. Glorious prosperity in my life. Like, I gave the amount of money he said to give on the screen. Like, shouldn't I get that back sevenfold? Like, no, you didn't know. There's a promise of a new beginning, but there's also a pattern of blessing and battle that you're stepping into. Here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He does that with you through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. As you're vulnerable, he empathizes with your weaknesses. As you go through those battles, he gives you victory in the midst of them. That There's not just blessing, then battle. There's blessing in the battle with Jesus Christ. That's the life you walk into. So if you're not a Christian, that's what I invite you into. Who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important question you'll ever answer. We, we talked about a lot of questions, a lot of issues of the last two series. If you missed it, go online and listen. We talked about racism. We talked about sexuality. We talked about why do bad things happen. We talked about a lot of issues that we need to come to a conclusion on. Listen, those issues pale in comparison to the issue, the one moment of truth you need to address. Who do you say Jesus is? As you figure that out, as you give your life to Jesus, as you enter into this blessing and battle, it's like a fountainhead. Everything flows from that. If you answer this question, who is Jesus, how is that reflected in my life? Racism, you start to get an accurate view of that. Sexuality starts to clear up a little bit. As much as those things were important to go through, these next 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, way more important. Who do you say Jesus is, non-Christian? I'm so glad you're here. I want you to know him. I want you to love him. I want you to live like him and lead others to him. I invite you into that today. You got a connect card in your bulletin. All you have to do is check a box that says, I've decided to follow Jesus today. You put your name and email in that, you drop it at the back at the Connect desk, and we will follow up with you, and we'll journey with you in this blessing, in this battle of, of walking with Jesus. If you are a Christian, here's my hope for you, that as we've looked at this already, this promise of a new beginning, this blessing, and this battle, maybe some of you are numb to it all. Maybe some of you have checked some boxes. Today is another box. Tim, I came to church. Let's go eat lunch. Let's move on. You say, I know Jesus, but let's move on. I would say to you, be reawakened to the person and work, the character and nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with all authority in heaven and on earth, who gives you your complete approval. Be reawakened to that. Not just to hear about him, not just to, to be around where Jesus is talked about, but to follow him yourself. 
You see, Christian, there's a few ways you can go through the gospel of Mark. There's a few ways you can experience the next few weeks and months with us in the series. You can come to church. I hope you do. I hope you come every week and journey through this gospel with us. That's one way you can do it. But I know that even if you show up on Sunday, there's ways where you cannot soak this in. Uh, this weekend was Phoenix Christian, the school across the streets, homecoming. It's their homecoming game. Friday night, they won like 59 to 0. They crushed it, right? Some of us got to help out with it. It was amazing. Felt like we were in high school again without the letter jacket, you know. And it was a lot of fun. And my wife actually works at the school. And last night was the homecoming dance. This, right? Arms fully extended dancing, right? The homecoming dance. You remember that? My wife's telling me a little bit about the dance last night. She's like, you know, one of, one of my kids comes in, and he sits down in the dance, and he just puts his headphones on. And my first thought was like, how smooth is that guy? Like, I don't need you guys. I don't need to do this awkward dance thing. I'm just going to jam out to my headphones, right? And, and as I thought about that a little bit more, though, I thought, man, we can do that in church, right? We can do that with the gospel of Mark. We can do that with Jesus. We can do that with the Christian life. We can show up every Sunday, and we can put our headphones in. We can check a box and probably get some answers right on the quiz about Jesus, but we can tune them out and become numb to him. And I would say, and I would plead with you in my prayer for you, is that you wouldn't do that. That you would ask the question too, who do I say Jesus is? How is that reflected in my life? Take the headphones off and begin to walk with Jesus through this journey with us. Come every week, participate, join a community group, get baptized on the 28th, become a member of this church, not just an attender. Go on a journey, take the headphones off, participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It will change you. It's impossible for it not to. Join us on this journey. Let me pray. God, thank you. I, I thank you for the gospel of Mark. I thank you that it's clear and credible. God, I thank you that as we have doubts, you don't just give us some story or flannel graph. God, you give us a text. You give us not only the gospel of Mark that's verifiable. You give us the whole of Scripture. 66 books, 40-plus authors, written over 1,500 years, over three continents. You give us that to give us confidence in you. God, I pray as we start this journey, this blessing, this battle of the life of Jesus and the gospel of Mark, we would take off the headphones. We would lean in. We would soften our hearts, and you would change us. As we all answer, non-Christian, Christian, as we all answer this most important question, who do we say Jesus is? Then the next question is equally important. Are we living in light of that truth? God, help us go on a journey. Guide us on this journey. Empower us with your Holy Spirit in the midst of this journey. Even if it means we become vulnerable, we get to experience your fullness as you empower us to walk with you. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.